Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week week slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Richard Roberts is an award-winning designer and educator. His body of work spans theatre, ballet, opera, musical theatre and film across Australia and internationally. He's currently Head of Design and Production at the Victorian College of the Arts. He has held positions as Head of Design at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, Head of Production at the Victorian College of the Arts, and Head of Design at the Hong Kong Academy of Performing Arts. Richard's current design is the operatic adaptation of Jane Harrison's The Visitors for Victorian Opera, now playing the Arts Centre in Melbourne. And for Opera Australia's summer season, he is design consultant for the Mozart operas Indomineo and The Magic Flute. He is one of Australia's great designers for the stage, and it was an absolute treat to spend an hour discussing this essential element of the theatre and Richard's journey to arrive at this celebrated position. Yeah, I mean, he, he and I met, it would have been in probably 1979, something like that, because I'd been at South Australian Theatre Company, which was my first, straight out of university, that was my first job, was in the design department at the South Australian Theatre Company as the design assistant. I think they gave me a job to shut me up, actually, because I, I was so kind of persistent with writing letters and then following it up with a phone call and then did anyone read my you know like and eventually someone said oh someone give this guy a job just shut him up the squeaky wheel gets oil (laughs) that's right (laughs) and and it was the time when um he was the last of the sort of english directors to be imported to run a company his name was colin george and really it never happened again completely appropriately you know, it was in the days when when that was not uncommon to sort of import... Uh, oh, John Sumner at the MTC. Yeah, John Sumner and, uh, or... Edgar um, McCarthy in Perth. Yeah, um, and Alan Edwards yes, in... In Queensland. In, in Queensland, you know. And anyway, but Colin was a fantastic artistic director and um, knew how to forge a company. And, and he gave me my first job, basically, in, in the design department. And one of his policies was to go to NIDA every year and sort of pick, you know, the best four graduates and offer them contracts at South Australian Theatre Company. So in the first year that I was there, Mel Gibson came with Judy Davis, Colin Friels and Michelle Stainer. And oh, maybe Michael Saberi was in that group as well. Um, 
then the following year Phil turned up. Phil Quast. Philip Quast. Yeah. And um, along with James Laurie and uh, a few... You know, he picked the eyes out of the graduating group. And, you know, it was the most incredible experience to be in this this company where there were a dozen actors on salary. It was the only company that I've known uh, an actor. His name was Les Damon. He'd been with the company long enough to take long service leave. Like, that's unheard of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing time. But very smart of Mr. George also to, to, to go over and pick those actors, oh. um, who really, uh, they're novice actors and they're, they're cutting their teeth on, on new repertoire material. Yeah. It's, a, it's a place for them to sort of, um, to learn and serve yeah. an apprenticeship after well, training. Well, he'd have, he'd do that. He'd have those new graduates, young actors, learning how to be an actor. And then to balance that, he had really experienced actors like Ruth Cracknell, Brian James, Ronald Falk, Teddy Hodgman. Um, they were also on salary, on, on contract. So you had these really experienced actors and these hungry rookie actors. Um, it was like the perfect learning environment. Mm. You know, the perfect way to train an actor, actually. What about or your a designer? Yeah, I was going to say. What about your learning environment? Yeah. You're, you're a design assistant. Yeah. So who, the, well, who were the designers that well, you're, you're learning from? Colin brought with him um, his long-term collaborator, collaborator, a guy called Rodney Ford. He was an English designer and came out. Rodney came out with his family. He brought out his his wife and three kids they had then and the most unbelievable tragedy happened. I mean, and he and I just immediately sort of bonded. I was his assistant. I did everything, built models. He showed me how to do all of that. And then about six months into that, they went off for a swim one day in um, one of the southern beaches of Adelaide. Some of those beaches can be quite treacherous. And Diddy, his wife, drowned. And so Rodney left. They went back. Um, the family, I mean, it was the most unbelievable time. I couldn't believe, you know, it was, was, was shocking. And Rod would have stayed, I think. Um, so anyway, we, but we sort of moved on, you know, we worked on in spite of all of that. And um, Hugh Coleman turned up. Rod, um, Colin met Hugh, offered him a, a contract. Hugh came over. Axel Bartz was there. Um, who else was there? And there was so the there were three or four of us at any one time in the design department, and of course that's that was my apprenticeship really. I mean that's how I learned how to do it. You know, you're looking over someone else's shoulder, you're taking the good bits of what they do and putting them all together, and that turns into your own work process or your own style. How long before you're given an opportunity to well, design your own show? I was sort of thrown in at the deep end, actually. Like, I got um, one of that first season, Colin just suddenly came to me and said, listen, you're going to have to do this play, but it, you'll be all right. I'm directing them. It was a, it was a season of... It was three one-act plays, and it, it was in the season called Too Early to Say because at the time they made the brochure, 
it was too early to say they didn't even know what they were going to be. And it turned out that there was a play by Roger Pulvers, there was a play by Ron Blair, and there was one other play who's, who, who wrote it, I can't remember now. But it was a, and it had, you know, amazing cast. Patricia Kennedy was in it. She was fabulous to me. There was this person who knew absolutely no, had, I had no process at all. And they kind of got me through it. And the thing about it was that in those days, you could afford to learn, you could have a go at something and not quite get it right and there'd be another one to do. Do you know what I mean? Like these days it's so much more brutal. Mm. You, you know, you're out there and I really feel for young designers that that sort of nurturing, developing um, environment that I was so so lucky to get find myself in it sort of doesn't exist anymore I guess that's what the training institutions are trying to to do you know and 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 that that sort of capacity for a student to fail I think is incredibly important like I, I think it's really really important to get that across to students that they are learning how to do it they are not necessarily doing it and it is okay to fail. And it's completely all right to do yeah. that. That's exactly what this environment's for. Mm. To kind of build up their their sort of resources, their inner resources, to, to for, for when they find themselves out there in the real world where you really can't. Well, you can, you can always fail. Mm. And we've all done shows that we think, oh, I could have done that, you know. Uh, I know every, every colleague of mine and, and myself we have a secret list of the ones that got away. <laughs> well, what about preceding uh, South Australian Theatre Company? Uh, you studied in Adelaide yeah. under Mr Whitlam's uh, yeah. umbrella, which was a great great time yeah. to study, I'm sure. Oh, look, it was, it was you know, my, my kind of trajectory has been terribly full of good fortune, really. Were you studying I mean, design then in, in no, Adelaide? Or I, architecture? Um, or? There was no... There was one very young design program, which was at NIDA. I think it was probably only four or five years old. This is in, I graduated from high school in 72. So in 1973, I was looking around what to do. I didn't really... I, I sort of knew I wanted to be a designer. I wasn't entirely sure what that job was, but I definitely wanted a job in the theatre. I mean, I was a theatre... You know, I... It was a MTC and anything that came through in J.C. Williamson's or, you know, I love the theatre. So, so you grew up in Adelaide? I grew up in Melbourne. In Melbourne, okay. And um, so when I finished school, I knew I wanted to keep going in that area, but I didn't quite know where. And my mother had said to me, look, you know, how about an art, you know, 17 years old, um, what about an arts degree that has a kind of, has drama sort of um, major opportunity, you know, a, a, the opportunity to have drama within it. And I thought, oh, and and I'd read about um, the the fairly new course set up at Flinders University by Walt Cherry, which he'd set up the drama centre, and it was a serious, you know, he was really serious about training actors and tech, technical uh, theatre people, and there was even a film stream there. And so that's what I did. 
decided I wanted to do. I, I wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do, but I, you know, so I thought an arts degree, which I still think is a pretty good option for somebody who's not quite sure what they want to do. So I headed off to Adelaide and that's, you know, I lived there for um, nearly 10 years. Sort of graduated from Flinders after an honours degree in drama and visual art, or fine arts they mm. called it in those days. And um, and then set off to, you know, I sort of badgered them enough at South Australian Theatre Company that someone gave in one day and said, oh, I'll give this guy a job, will you just please just keep, you know, <laughs> keep him quiet? So, And that's where I really learned how to be a designer. I think that was my master's programme. Because the, the early 70s, that, the, you know, the Australian industry is really in its infancy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean... Williamson starting to appear. Pram and, Factory you know, still Pram going. Factory, La, La Mama. Uh, Williamson had, you know, he'd sort of got going in the early, in the late 60s. 60s yeah. So, so he was starting to really. Um, but before that, you know, it was English, English uh, repertoire and. Um, yeah, well, a lot of English practitioners who'd come to Australia. Very much, yeah. you know. So, and and you know, John Sumner was running the Melbourne Theatre Company, and he'd set it up. Um, he used to go off to England every year and see what they were doing and then the next season MTC would Bring it do back. the season that that had been seen at you know the national or whatever um, and Wall came in for a year and really kind of stirred things up a bit you know at Melbourne Theatre Company this is in the 60s and sort of programmed Ionesco and you know um, and of some of the American writers, um, and stirred things up, up possibly more than the subscribers could handle. So what's that, Williamson, uh, uh, Tennessee Williams, A lot of Tennessee Williams, um, you know, Eugene O'Neill, yeah. um, and anyway, then Wall went off to Adelaide and set up Flinders as a result. So Wall was a really, he was pretty revolutionary actually, and he was an amazing guy to to have as your professor and you know I, the irony of it is you know his daughter Kate ended up being one of my kind of key collaborators for years and years we worked together really yeah. happily yeah. so yeah no that was a really lucky time and, and to be in Adelaide at a time when the premier was a poet Don Dunstan mm-hmm. the you know the theatre company was receiving then a million dollars a year in subsidy like it doesn't even get that now mm. and it you know let alone um, allowing for inflation mm. I mean it was a very very well resourced company and in fact the the facilities that had been built for it by the state government in the playhouse in Adelaide were the model that every other theatre company looked at and said well that's how you build a theatre company that's what a theatre company really looks like. Like South Australian Theatre Company, when I was there, had a library and two librarians. It had a on-staff photographer. So across the road from the design department was a photographer in his whole ph- photographic studio. Uh, the design department consisted of four people, sort of on-staff in there, including a little junior like me. Um, it, it was unbelievable. You know, it had a, an acting company, a, a contracted company, as we've talked about before. It had, um, yeah, it had 
all these things that companies don't have anymore. Well, I feel quite fortunate, Richard, in that my uh, first professional theatre-going experiences were at the Melbourne Theatre Company in the late yeah. 80s, yeah. where I saw several of your designs. Oh, did you? Yeah. And then we worked together on one show at Whopper when you yeah. were head of design there. Um, and then as recently as last year, I saw the Sunshine Club in Queensland. Oh, did you? So you've been doing it quite a while. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, my first professional job was actually in 1975. I was still at university and I was that, that year was my third year at uni and, and because I wanted to be a designer and there was a technical course and an acting course, but there wasn't a design program. So by the time I got to third year and everybody realised, oh, he wants to be a designer, we could tell because I was designing all the shows, but there was no one there to teach me what to do. So they didn't really know what to do with me in third year. So um, Wall and Lorraine, who was running the technical course, got together and they, they did a deal with the local opera company and they stitched up a deal where I would spend time in the costume department, the props department, the painting department, and then the scenic workshop. And that would be my year. So I would do, you know, one opera with them, then an opera, then an opera, then an opera, in all of those departments. In the fourth one, the workshop one, where I was part of the workshop, sort of actually making scenery and being taught how to make scenery, they liked me and I loved being there so much that at the end of that year they offered me a job and it was a real kind of moment of, hmm, this is a kind of, I've reached a, a fork in the road here and if I go that way I'm going to be a scenic carpenter, which I loved doing and I must confess I enjoyed the money because they paid me eventually. Or if I go this road, this is the road of the designer and actually when I sort of thought about it, there's no question of it, I want to go down the design road. And at that point, someone in the opera company, this is late 75, they said, um, can you do the school show? And so I, that was my very first um, paid gig. I mean, the fee was probably, you know, $500 or something like that. And yeah, so that's, I don't know, what's that? Oh my God, 75. Coming close to 50 years. <laughs> it's a bit frightening, really, isn't it? 48 years. Hmm. You get a gold watch. And actually, I was in, I was doing an opera at Opera Australia a, oh, it was a little while ago. Oh, when was it? Before, just before COVID. I was doing Don Pasquale for Opera Australia, and one of the chorus members, one of the old members of the chorus, he'd been there for, he was about, and he's retired now, he's been in the, but he was in the Opera Australia chorus for, you know, 30 years or something like that. Robert, Robbie, I want to say Taylor, but I don't, it's not Robert Taylor. Uh, we're talking, I was in a fitting with him, I was designing a costume for him, and I was in a fitting, and he said, oh, my first opera was blah, blah, blah. And that, that was the one. Oh, wow. And new wow. opera wow. in South Australia in 1975. So he made his debut in that, in this little kid's opera, and so did I. Wow. Mm, it was amazing. Lovely bookends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so in those formative years, you know, in your teenage years, are you studying visual arts at, at high school or photography? or um, Yeah, visual art, music. Yeah. Uh, I went to a very strong music school. 
uh, high school, Campbell High School, had a very strong art department. It had a passionate, it didn't have a drama, you didn't do drama at school in those days, but it, you know, they put on the school play and, and by the end of my time at school, like I was really lucky to be with a really passionate group of it helps, doesn't mates it? Yeah. at school. Like, I, you know, I can imagine how difficult it would be if you were the only one in a school full of sporty kids or something. It would be very difficult. But I had an amazing group around me, including Michael Tyak, who was... We were best friends. <laughs> I love this podcast because there are so many crossovers yeah, and, and relationships. And I, when we were at school <laughs> together, we played in a little trio. Yeah, yeah. He played piano. <laughs> hey, Jenny. Um, at, at school, in for yeah. your musicals and all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, he played piano, I played double bass, and we had a drummer. And we used to earn our sort of um, holiday money by playing, playing in, um, you know, little... And in a restaurant, actually, in um, Richmond in... Uh, what's it called? Um... Chapel Street goes over the river and becomes... What does it come over the river? Oh. Punt Road or...? No. Um, anyway, it's the, the extension of Chapel Street once you go over the river and there was a big old sort of ghastly-looking place long been pulled down, which was a sort of dinner restaurant. Terrible food. And we played... The, we were the little jazz trio that played every Saturday night in the corner and were given, you know, that, that was Michael. So I was really lucky to have a group of people. We all loved the theatre. We all wanted to be part of it. We all went to the theatre together, you know. So the, the family used to go off to theatre? That's how Not really. No, my, my um, you know, my parents were not all that interested in theatre. I mean, mum used to go to the ballet from time to time. My godfather was the person who really sort of took me to my first show I can remember I don't remember what the show was but I would have been about 10 years old and he took me to the Princess Theatre to see something there and the only thing I can remember about it was that it involved gauze scenic gauze because there was a picture on stage and then suddenly someone appeared behind it and I was completely hooked (laughs) And, you know, gauze is just one of those magical things that it's still capable of taking people's breath away, I think. Yeah. Obviously, uh, the parent, your parents were supportive of you going into the theatre, if, if mum was yeah. looking for an arts degree for you yeah. to, to do and all that sort of thing. Very much so. And, like, I come from a family where my great-grandfather was a famous painter. It was Tom Roberts. The Heidelberg School. The Heidelberg We've School. We've all studied Tom Roberts. Yeah. At the high school in India. And he had, a, he had one son who was um, my grandfather and he was an engineer. And he was... I'd never... You know, I've never known this for sure, but there was a sort of sense within the family that my grandfather rejected the sort of bohemian artistic lifestyle that his father led. And so when my father was born and expressed an interest in music and, and, and in fact was quite a gifted flautist, you know, and 
and at the end of school toyed with the idea of a, a, a life as a musician, his father, my grandfather, said, no, 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 you, you're going to be an engineer. Because Dad was also a very gifted engineer, you know, and yeah. that's what he did. Yeah. And there was always a sense with Dad that, oh, what would have happened if I'd had that life as a musician? So I think when I came along and said, you know, I wouldn't mind a life in the theatre, they were both like, if that's what you're thinking, that's what you should do. Right. I was incredibly lucky. Yeah. There's another bit of luck. Yeah. yeah. I didn't have to, you know, like I've got students here, um, particularly international students who have to hide the fact that they want to do what we do because it's not kind of in line with the way their family might see their destiny. Have you ever used any of your your great-grandfather's works as inspiration for design? Not really. No, No, I don't think so. I mean, uh, you know, they... No. Um, And, you know, the, the... what I do on it, my work isn't remotely like what he did. Yeah. You know, like for a start, you know, a painter can exist entirely on their own. Mm. They can go out to a studio with a blank piece of canvas, canvas or paper or whatever and make an artwork. I, I can't do that. Yeah. I, I'm, and I don't want to do that. I'm entirely dependent on others and they're dependent on me. You know, like I work in a group. We Together we make a work and put it together and that's part of why I want, what I want to do. Uh, the idea of sitting alone in a studio somewhere that fills me with horror. <laughs> no, not really. Well, well the theatre is a, a collaborative experience, yeah, isn't com- it? Completely, yeah, completely. Yeah. Know. And if you don't... You know, you've got to be a good listener... And you've got to be, at the same time, a person who's um, confident enough to make offers without feeling rejected, if they are, are rejected, you know, like just move on to the next idea or whatever. You know, it, and I love that part of it. Do you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. That, that 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 discovery and that you're all you all start there on the ground floor together. All that that creative yeah. team, and you enter into. I guess what a what a solitary artist does is uh, there's a there's a an English sculptor called um, Anthony Gormley, and he made a a sculpture once called Blind Blind Light, I think is the name of it. And it's a base and I was really lucky enough to see it in London one at an exhibition or well, years ago now. And basically the sculpture was a glass box and when you walked up to it, it was internally lit. It looked like this kind of white glowing box. It was glass, but you realised that it was what you couldn't see the light source inside. What you realise when you look carefully at it that it was a box full of fog, like full of white mist and dense enough that you couldn't see the light inside it. So, And there's a way into it. You can walk into it. And if you stand there long enough, you see shadows of people who are inside it walking towards the glass with their hands to reach out to yeah. figure out where they are. Yeah. And I walked into it, and it's pretty freaky when you walk into it because you literally cannot see anything. You're blind. 
blind light. And I've always thought that's a really great metaphor for when you're starting to work on a show. You have no idea where you're going to go. Mm -hmm. But it takes a bit of courage to walk into that room. And a, a solid, a, as an artist, a visual artist, does it on their own. And I'm lucky enough to do it with friends. <laughs> do you know? <laughs> well, I lifted a lovely a quote from your website. Um, being a designer and starting a show requires curiosity about the world being a good listener, hard-working, creative, inventive, resilient, and brave enough to enter the fog of the creative space. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. And, and that comes, those words come from me think, imagining that, mm. that sculpture. It's, it's an incredible piece, actually. So it's Melbourne, amazing sculpture. Melbourne Theatre Company it comes after South Australian Theatre Company? Yeah, uh, a little, yes, after that. So I went off to Adelaide and, you know, I'd been looking at MTC shows and sitting there watching the work of... Dick Fred Parslow. And, and, oh, Fred Parslow yeah. as actors and... Oh, but are oh, you talking design? And, and then there were, you know, there the were the Christian Fredrickson and... John Truscott? Did you Truscott MTC? didn't no. ever do anything for the MTC, I don't think. Um, but Anne Fraser... Um, and you know the the three designers that were there when I was a schoolboy were Christian, Dick Prins, and Anne. And Dick was the one whose work really resonated for me. He was very quite architectural and sculptural somehow. Whereas and Christians who I admired massively, like I just thought he was like uh, unbelievable. But his work, I thought I could never do that. That is that is in another world. Yeah. That's not my world, you know. Whereas Dick's, I thought, he, he was the one I really aspired to. So I went off to Adelaide with those things in my head, thinking, oh, my God, if one day if I ever get to work in the MTC, it would be like the end of my... I will have done everything I wanted, <laughs> you know. And then South Australian Theatre Company came along. I was there for five years, uh, nearly five years, and then we made the move to Sydney. John Bell had come across to Adelaide to do something and he was running Nimrod Theatre Company at the time and we met somehow, I can't remember how, and John said, oh, would you be interested in... I'd, I'd been thinking, and Joan and my wife, we'd been thinking of leaving Adelaide, but we'd, we sort of thought maybe Melbourne, maybe Sydney, and then John offered me a job in Sydney, so it was Sydney. And he offered me a year's contract at, at Nimrod in 1982, I think it was, or 81. And we shifted and, and then lived in Sydney for nearly five years, for, for about five years. And I've, I, I did that one year at Nimrod, then I freelanced, because Sydney's not a resident designer town. And there was, you know, the, the thought that this jumped up young designer from Adelaide came and suddenly took five shows from Nimrod's season didn't go down terribly well and subsequently all of those designs became my friends and colleagues of course and then I so for the next four years in Sydney I freelanced along with everybody else mm. and Sydney Theatre Company uh, in those days there were a lot of regional companies still going there was the Riverina Theatre Company or we called it the Riverina Trucking Company <laughs> down in Wagga yeah. There was Theatre South in Wollongong. There was um, New Moon Theatre Company in Cairns in North Queensland. The Hunter. 
Hunter Valley Theatre yeah. Company that yet there were they were seriously good companies and really great companies for young designers like me, you know, to really learn how to do it. And those regional companies you got to do bigger shows, you know, with bigger casts and so well, that's the thing. You're required to design for different size spaces, yeah. different size casts, yeah. um, constantly adapting yeah. your process. And well, and you know the thing about cast sizes. Though I was in the theatre the other day, and I was talking to somebody, and um, you know we were saying, you know, theatre companies think of a big cast these days as eight people. Yeah. You know, yeah. in when I first started. Some, an eight-hander was a small show. Yes. Do you know? Yes. And, you know, I, I remember the first year I was at South Australian Theatre Company, I was the assistant designer on a production of The Cherry Orchard, a cast of 20. And there were several who had no lines. They were just serfs carrying bags in for, yeah. you know, for the aristocracy or whatever. Um, so it's really different now, very different. I love a big cast show. Well, you still see see it in the opera. Yeah. You know, you you know, to see forty people on stage is phenomenal, really. Or you know, I did the beginning of this year Don Quixote for Australian Ballet. You know, and that had there must have been at least forty people on stage at any one time in that. And to see these crowds of people is fabulous. Yeah. Mm. So MTC. When did you land so, there and, so, and feel that you had arrived? <laughs> I, was in Ad, I was in Sydney and um, I had gone down, while I was still living in Sydney, I'd been asked to come down to design a new Alex Buzo play called The Marginal Farm and that was directed by Arnie Nimi and uh, Helen Morse, no, Helen was in it Diane Craig Gary McDonald's partner she was in it and I'd come down to do that but I was still sort of working on Nimrod shows and I had a few other things to do so I came down to do Marginal Farm I did that and I enjoyed that was at Russell Street and while I was sort of halfway through that John Sommer came in and said um, would I be interested in doing um Tom Stoppard play called The Real Thing. So, oh yeah, that sounds. So I took a copy home and read it and came back in and we started working on John and I. And we about, I'd, we'd had a couple of meetings about it and I was starting to formulate some ideas or whatever. And then he said, well, after this, I'll get you to do, I don't know what the play was. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I won't be able to do that, John. I'm, I'm, got to be back in Sydney to, I think it was Uncle Vanya for, for Nimrod. And he looked at me and he frowned and he said, what do you mean, you're not staying? I said, no, no, I'm, I, you know, I'm just here to do some freelance work and I I'm, I'm still live in Sydney. Well, he snatched the real thing away from me immediately <laughs> and Anne Fraser designed it. And I went back to Sydney and people said to me, oh, look, you, know, you didn't turn him down, did you? Because he'll never ask you again. You know, you only turned John Sumner down once because he was pretty fierce. Blackjack. And that was two years later, the phone rang, and I was in the middle of doing an absolutely 
like such a challenging I was designing a television series for SBS big long series and I was a bit over it but I was going to get through it and the phone rang about three quarters of the way through that saying would you be interested in coming and I couldn't say yes fast enough and it was John so it was and he was asked, saying <laughs> yeah so I thought I won't turn him down this time so I went down there in 86 I think it was and became a resident designer. And th that's when I thought, oh, here I am. And then it was like everything else, it had its challenges, and it was, but it's a fantastic company to work for. And I've always thought of MTC as my sort of, even though I haven't worked there for years now, but I still think of them as a very important part of my theatre career, really. Them and South Australian Theatre Company. Mm. Yeah. I still have, you know, see visuals of, of, of Emerald City and yeah. uh, Letters and Lovage, yeah. Dreams in an Empty City, which is yeah. a big cast play. Yeah. yeah. Well, funnily enough, um, with Emerald City, I didn't see John for years and years, you know, like, and he retired and went back to live in England for a long time, and then he lived down, down on the peninsula. And I hadn't seen him for years and years. And he was quite an elderly man. And I saw him walking through. And I was here, VCA head of production. And he was back in Melbourne because they were naming the theatre after him. Right. And, you know, this probably wasn't that long before he died. And anyway, I saw him in the distance. And, and I thought, because he was a bit scary, John. And I thought... Oh, will I say hello? Will I? I thought, oh, bugger it, Richard, just say hello, you know. Yes. So I walked up to him and, and I said, Hello, John, you probably don't remember me, but it's Richard Roberts and I just wanted to say hello and how lovely it is to see you. And he paused and then he said, You did a marvellous set for me for Emerald City. <laughs> and then we had a fabulous conversation and he was so delightful and... Um, generous and you know so I thought oh that was good to say hello yeah what was it like to work at Russell Street Russell Street was a fantastic beautiful theater, little actually. space I yeah. adored that theatre yeah. and it had a beautiful intimate quality and yet it seated about 400 people um, it and it because MTC owned it they could do anything they liked to it you know I remember one I did a production of a of a play called Tristram Shandy. Gent. Gent. Yep. Which Simon Phillips directed, and it's Geoffrey Rush played Tristram Shandy, and we had. Oh, um, they're throwing, throwing um, Brussels sprouts. Or cabbages. cabbages and Brussels sprouts. <laughs> it was a ridiculous play. But we set it in a sort of abandoned, rotting Georgian theatre, as if it had fallen down. And I and and it was the set sort of grew right out into the audience, and I had had this little fantasy. I said to to the technical department one day, "Oh, you know, it'd be so good if you could knock. You won't be able to do this, but it, wouldn't it be fabulous if you could knock a hole in the proscenium arch so you could come straight out of the dressing room onto my set?" And the technical guy said, "Yeah, we could do that." I said. Are you serious? And the next thing I know, they they punched two holes in the proscenium wall on either side, so that we could build right out on the side, and they could they could enter straight from the dressing rooms onto the set. The only kind of sort of fly in the ointment 
was that they had to get it past the fire department because you know the, you've got to have a fire curtain and yeah. and the proscenium is is the sort of part of that point that wall, which you, that's yeah. the wall mm. right that divides the stage from the audience they fussed about the type of door that we were putting in and we had to put in a rated door that would be fire rated for nine hours you know you could have a raging inferno and it wouldn't burst into flames until nine hours the day comes to put the doors in and they cut into the wall of the proscenium arch and it's cardboard (laughs) so we we all had this vision of a fire where the entire proscenium arch just went up up like like that that and there's these two doors standing sentinel Of nine hours. <laughs> uh, it was a great, it was a beautiful theatre there. Yeah. So it's such a shame that it just, um, it is no more. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a preference for set or costume design? Probably set. Mm. I mean, I've, I, I do like, when I'm given the opportunity, opportunity to do both, I will say yes really quickly. Because I like, you know, to have complete control, it sounds like a control freak, but to have have control over the whole world of the visual world of the plays is, you know, when when I work with a costume design, like if I only do one, I would, it would probably only be the set, and then I would work with a colleague costume designer. But that relationship between you and the costume designer is really critical. Like oh, you, you can't be just anyone. No, you're gonna have to share the same vision, don't you? The same vision and the same sort of aesthetic, I suppose, yeah, yeah. and. And, and see the world a bit similarly. Um, and so when you're doing it all yourself, that's, that's easy. You just talk to each other. <laughs> you know, Richard, how shall I do this? Oh, um, you know. so, but the, the colour palette comes into question too, doesn't absolutely. it? Absolutely. You know, and, and like, for instance, when, when I've done, like I did a production of um, Deflator Mouse for Opera Australia and West Australian Opera a long time ago. 30 years ago with Lindy Hume and the costume designer for that was Angus Strathy who had it was a brilliant costume designer I mean really amazing Angus and he subsequently he's lived in America for the last 30 years not long after that I think he went and worked in film and you know he won an Academy Award for um, Strictly Ballroom and anyway Angus costume designer and I knew Angus's work and he is a full-on colorist you know like his sense of color is fabulous and it's intense and so on. so my sets I thought okay I'm going to limit the palette of the sets to black and white basically and something else other things in between now you know with silver and gold metal and so the sets were the first set scene was a white Art Deco apartment building in Manhattan in, 19, in the 1930s. The second scene was a nightclub in Manhattan on the 12th floor of, a, of the Chrysler building, you know, all in black marble. Because, you know, it was like, okay, the sets need to provide the kind of launching pad for this incredible explosion of colour that he's going to do. So, you know, in that sense, you've really got to be able to... Yeah. 
you know, the, the, they have to go together. Yeah. You know, you, you can't, um, you know, every now and then you, you, see, you see a show and you think, oh, that, those two designers didn't talk to each other. They, they could, you could separate those and they've got not a lot to do with each other. Do, do designers uh, generally have an opportunity to say whether they feel they could work with the other? Oh, definitely. Other yeah. yeah. And I mean, that would come in any sensible producer. That would come yeah. into the equation. How do you feel about yeah. What do you think of? You yeah. know, and, and quite often one will be chosen before the other and then whoever's chosen first will they'll say, well, what would you think about working with so-and-so? You yeah. Know? yeah. And same with lighting designers. Well, know? that's right. I mean, a lighting designer can absolutely shift everything, all the work completely, that you've done. Completely, yeah. completely. And you know, the really good lighting, the ones that I love working with, show you things about your set that you never could have imagined. You know, but, but because we're, you're on the same wavelength or you've, you've got a similar aesthetic, it's like, oh, what a brilliant idea. You know, I, could, I would never have thought of that. That's exactly what I'm looking for. You know, but I think that's what directors look for in actors too, don't you think? That oh, yeah. you get into, you see directors in the rehearsal room trying to set it up and and waiting for the actor to do something that illuminates the play for the director as well. Mm -hmm. You know, and goes, oh, that is perfect. <laughs> you know, keep that, yeah. keep that, do more. Yeah. <laughs> so, so in a sense, you know, I think really good directors are really good editor. Mm. You know, they kind of know what fits and what doesn't. Which bits to get rid of, which bits to grab. Yeah. Um, just talking back to um, John Sumner calling you and offering you the gig. Mm. This is a time when designers didn't really have representation. Is that true? Were they, they were contacted but, directly by the companies or the producers? Um, by that stage, I had just started having an, an agent. Um, I'd got one when I first went to Sydney, and I and that agency had sort of fallen over. And then I didn't have an agent for a little while, and I got when I got into film, and film were, you know, a film contract is a rather complicated thing, and I didn't feel equipped to sort of read it and sign it. So Phil Quast, my friend Phil, his agent was ICS International Casting, and it was Gloria Payton and. Um, and they didn't have designers. Very, in fact, I don't think terribly. There weren't many. I think uh, Shanahan's might have had a few, a couple of designers, and Hilary Lindstedt, I remember, they had they handled directors and designers. But I didn't have an agent, and I said to Phil one day, we we were going into his agency. I was just with him, and I just happened to say to his agent, um, Philomena Moore, I said, oh. I don't suppose you'd agree to look at this contract for me. And she said, yes, darling, send it over to me, you know, like... And so I paid her a fee to just do it. And then there was another one, and then we paid a fee, and then there was another one, and eventually Philomena said, this is ridiculous, why don't you, we just put you on the books? And I was the first designer that ICS had. And then they had... They started getting other designers on the books. And that's how it worked. So I think when John rang me, I would have had ICS by then, but it's still a thing where even now, like I get jobs because, you know, Lindy Hume will ring me up and yeah. say, hey, I've been asked to do such and such next year. Would you be interested? Yeah. And then you go, yeah, of course, ring Justine, you know, yeah. like, and then the agent handles it. Yeah. 
Obviously, you build established relationships over your career, don't you? Definitely. People who like working with you. And yeah. There's a shorthand there where yeah. you understand each other. And, and you know, when you find another... When, a, when two people find each other creatively, that, that's quite precious, that relationship. So, you know, the really good relationship, they go back a long, long time. Like, Linda Hume, for example, I am doing something... Well, we, we, we did a Domineo earlier this year together, which is going to go on again at the Opera House next year, and then I've got another project in the pipeline beyond that with her. Now, the first time I worked with her was in Perth in 1992, Magic Flute, my first opera I ever designed. She was running West Australian Opera. So that's like 31 years ago. And over the 30 years, we've worked together... I don't know how many, I've never counted them, it's probably half a dozen or maybe more operas that we've done over that length of time together. And, you know, you might see them for two or three years and then she'll ring up and then we'll see a lot of each other and that's the way it goes. And, and, you know, you find, and she'll she'll ring me about particular projects that she thinks I'm the right one for. You know, and then the, he, there are other designers that work a lot with Lenny, like Dan Potro is another yeah. designer who works yeah. a lot with her. So, it's I, I love that about it. You yeah. know, that there's this long. It's it's in a way like you're having this really really long conversation with someone, and each time you work together, you sort of pick up the threads again. Do you yeah. know? Yeah. So that there's. I've never thought of this before, but I mean, you know, it'd be interesting to do a little exhibition of just the work that you've done with that director yeah. and see if see what the through line might be for that. You know, yeah, yeah. perhaps you could do a, one of you know, this table here is Lindy Hume, this table here is Wesley Enoch. Do you yeah, know? Yeah. And see if there's anything. And I think there are definitely things. I know with Wesley there are things that we did in that one that we'll try again with this one or. Because you've designed a lot of indigenous themed works, yeah. haven't you? Yeah, he, he, he was stolen with Jane Harrison. That was the first time. Yeah. So I got put together with Wesley quite by accident, really, because stolen was an ilbidgery playbox in those days. It was called playbox um, co-production. This unknown play by Jane Harrison about the stolen generation, and I had been asked by Aubrey Meller. He put me together with an, a different director, Indigenous director, who I got on really well with. And we started work on it, and I developed a white card model and then a more complicated, you know, I got a fair way down the track with this director, and then he rang me one night and said, oh, I'm really, really sorry, but I'm having to withdraw from the project for various reasons. And I was really sad because we had a great relationship and I did go on and do some other work with him later. Um, but he, he had to pull out. And anyway, Aubrey rang me the next day and said, you know, I'm so sorry that this has happened, but I found this guy. You'll really get on. I know you'll, get, you'll like each other. And his name's Wesley Enoch. And so Wesley flew down from Brisbane. I put that whole thing aside and started again. And Wesley came into the room actually, and we didn't know each other. And he had this A4 sheet of paper and he'd written 
just they were not it wasn't they were just like almost like bullet points like his thoughts about the play and they were not necessarily about the design they were just everything he thought about the play and it was so helpful it was like oh this is so clear he's very articulate Wesley yeah. like he's really very intelligent and sort of to the he can nail it do you know he can put his finger on the thing that you're trying to you're in the foggy room he knows yes. where to go <laughs> um, and um, we just hit it off and did Stolen and I loved doing that show I mean I, and, I, and you know that was uh, I'm working on um, The Visitors at the moment for Victorian Opera with another Jane Harrison but it's an opera it's, well it's on in Sydney at the moment it's, it's on a play Sydney. the play is on in Sydney and the opera yeah, is in rehearsal down here yeah. at the moment and, you know, I was just saying the other day to all the cast and we were just talking about where everybody came from and who we were and all of that. And I just said, look, you know, my kind of time working with Indigenous artists has been... It, it's a very special part of my experience, my life. Uh, I feel incredibly lucky that... I've been sort of invited into their world because you, you, that has to happen. And, and it's a different relationship to, like, you know, you, you design um, La Boheme. Yeah. We're all doing that together. We're, it's, it's, it belongs to all of us because it's, it's a story from over there that we're all going to tell. Mm. When you work on the Sunshine Club, it's their story. It's not my story, yeah. you know. Like I, I'm helping them tell their story, and there are certain points in that process where the best thing to do is to kind of discreetly withdraw and let some things happen, and then come back into the conversation. You know, like it's a different thing, and I feel incredibly privileged to have been allowed into that. With the Sunshine Club, you designed that original production, Sydney Theatre Company, set in costumes. Yeah, it was Queensland Theatre Company originally. Originally, and it played yeah, at STC, yeah, it, right. Yeah. And then uh, you've come back to it last year as costume designer. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you refocus or find a new way to tell that story? Well, through? yeah, it's a good question. I mean, that the, the origins of that piece were, like, we had just done Stolen together, and Wesley said to me, while we were doing Stolen... He said to me um, something like, oh, I've written this musical. I'd be interested to know what you think of it. You know, like, what do you, what do you think? You know, so he gave me a copy of it and I went home and read it and listened. He had a little tape of some of the music. And I came back and we had a long chat about it and I, I loved it. But I didn't think he was offering it to me. Right. right? So... I just thought he was just saying, what do you think? You know, like, we're having a good time doing this together and, you know, I'd be interested to know what you think about this. So, and I told him, whatever. But I, and I thought, oh, I wonder if he wants me to design it. I don't know. He's not saying anything. Like, anyway, so he didn't say anything. And, like, weeks went by. And then, and I know, he rang me up one day and he said, oh, look, I, I, I want to have another talk about Sunshine Club. And I, I went, oh, yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> And then, I don't know how it came about, but I said, are you asking me to do it? And he said, of course I am. That's what I said. Between, like, 
he had never asked me. Right. But of course, so we, we, that was the beginning of that. And then we went to a number of shows after that. But so I flew up to Brisbane and he took me all around the Brisbane River. I'd never been to Brisbane before. And um, we spent quite a lot of time together, both up there and down here, sort of toing and froing about it. And and it had a sort of aesthetic then that was a very a bit of rough, really. It was deliberately rough. Um, and and then it had it. So oh, it was Queensland Theatre Company first. It would have been commissioned by Robin Nevin when she ran. QTC. Then Robin moved to Sydney, or back to Sydney, to take up the artistic directorship of STC, and she programmed it as her very first show. So no pressure, you know. And that was ghastly. I know Wesley was really stressed about it when it came down to Sydney, and it was oh, it had a, an unfortunate birth in Sydney because um, the beautiful. David Page had played the principal role in uh, in Brisbane, and we'd actually toured it through far north Queensland. It hadn't. It was it was really luxurious when I think about it. It had this out of town triad in Cairns, so we we rehearsed for a little while in in Brisbane. Then we all moved up to Cairns for four weeks, and it, and built it in Cairns at the Cairns, Cairns Civic Centre and rehearsed it, put it on. Then it moved to Mackay, and I went with it to Mackay. And then I, I said to Wesley, I've got to go home now, because <laughs> it had Rockhampton and Townsville, I think, to do. So I left it, and then it came into Brisbane, and it had a season in Brisbane, and, and it had a beautiful cast, you know, uh, Kristen O'Leary, um, uh, as I said, David Page was so beautiful in it. Um, and a, and, a, and a cast of, um, it was about six Indigenous actors and six white actors, I think it was. Anyway, we did it, and it, and then then when Robin brought it down to Sydney, she insisted that it, all the Aboriginal actors could come to it, but the, all the white actors must be recast from Sydney. And it was a bit of a fatal mistake, I think, because they had formed such a bond. Such a bond, yeah. And, you know, like over a really long period of touring and all of that, they were like 12 people who were... Yeah. And had ownership of that yeah. production. Yeah. So, so I think that was, a, in retrospect, a big mistake, so that the whole magic of the show had to be found again yeah. with a new group of people, essentially. And then, to compound problems, David, on Christmas Day, his nephew got a skateboard for Christmas, and David said, I'll show you how to do it, and broke his ankle. So he was out of the show. And we were opening like two weeks later. So at the last minute, we brought, they brought in another actor to play that role. So it was really behind the eight ball mm. in Sydney. But it was a fantastic show. I loved it. And it's full of heart and beautiful. And then so Lee Lewis, I think Lee Lewis programmed it, or maybe it was... Yeah, it was Lee. And then she programmed it for QTC this year, uh, last year. Was it last year? Yeah. And um, Jake Nash did the set, and I did, I did the costumes. And I sort of... 
I just said to Wesley, what do you want to do? And he said, well, I'd like you to do what you did last time, you know. So I did, I, I did very much follow the kind of, the, the approach that I'd taken last time, which was these very real, I wanted them to look like, I, I didn't want them to look too designed, yeah. um, but I wanted them to look like real period clothes. Um, and then they were in this beautiful world that Jake invented of, you know, quite almost, um, quite mystical in a way. So, Which was quite a, a different vision to what you had originally created. Totally different, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had created a sort of a dance hall where um, we, well, they sort of just built a dance hall. In a, in a, I mean, essentially my set was just a, a rough board floor that... Yeah. And a, and a very simple box of, of uh, very gauzy, beautifully painted actually, cloud, a cloudscape. Yeah. And then people just appeared in it. The, the dance hall that they made was assembled and then disassembled in that space, that's all. Yeah. It was very simple, yeah. very, very, very um, like the actors did everything, pushed everything out, no automation, no, it wasn't like a kind of musical. Yeah. Uh, I remember Jacob had that uh, very imposing log yeah. at the front of the stage. Yeah, which flew, which, you know, yeah. flew, I think at one stage we really wanted that to revolve, but, you know, having a band on stage on a revolve is a very challenging thing, as I have found out myself <laughs> with the sapphires. Right. It is very challenging, the sound department. Yes. Because you've got... Shifting it. Oh, you know, when the band is there for one moment and then it's here and then it's here and then it's here, you know, and you're hearing it all and it's extremely difficult. Yeah. And, you know, I think in um, the Sapphires, we actually, we not only had it uh, revolving, but we also had it moving up and down. So, you know, that was a nightmare for sound. Elements you don't consider until it's in practice. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, sound department. Certainly, tell you. <laughs> so, uh, Lindy Hume has curated yeah. the, the summer season for Opera Australia mm. um, and his program, Edomineo and the Magic Flute, yeah. uh, which Kate Gould's directing. Yeah. Um, you're down as set design consultant. Yeah. Um, it's a design by Michael Jurgen. Jurgen. Yeah. Um, which is great, it's being repurposed. Yeah. What does your role involve as being being well? Basically, my Lindy rang me up and said, "Look, I'm I'm I wonder if you're interested in this job. It's there's a there's a a beautiful set by Michael Jurgen for for an opera called Verter, which was in their repertoire from the I think I'm going to say late eighties. I think around about that time. So you know, quite a long time, uh, forty. You know, getting on to forty years ago, and it's a very beautiful, simple gauze box and a white board floor and a revolve in the middle and three doors. It's really simple, and he had things that went in it to create the various scenes in the opera. But the essentially the structure is a very simple room, and Lindy had this idea that she wanted to do a domineo using the just the bare room but projecting images all over it and she said oh, I don't know whether this is even going to work but w would you be interested in helping me do it you know and I I, I I work with Lindy any day she's just so 
such a she's like Wesley she's so smart and theatrical got a fabulous theatre mind and just good to be with too you know so I said yes before you know always gets me into trouble yes before you think about it too much and then and then it became like well what is my job here you know like because the set already exists and it became about what if you put 40 chairs in there Lindy and what what if the chairs look like this and what if they sat in this formation and revolved around and maybe we could fly some objects into this space and so that that became my job it's like how do we manipulate this space to tell that story and then the same with magic flute with Kate is how do we transform the space again so we're doing something very different with that white room but it's still going to be the white room with the three doors and the gauze walls but I think with flute it's going to look different but I mean everyone will know it's the same set and it's Michael Jürgen's set so He's really the designer. So it's a bit like we maybe maybe we've been running a, a sort of uh, you know a, one of those running races where there's two people and you pass the baton. Yeah. And he did the first lap, and I'm doing the second lap. Maybe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I've had a bit of that lately with uh, Don Q that I did for Australian Ballet at the beginning of this year. That began life by Barry Kay. He did the film designs for it. And I've turned his film designs into a stage design, which is technically quite a tricky challenge in itself. And that's a bit like that. Like he's, he did the first lap and I've done, I did the second. When, when you're creating a design, what is your work, how do you like your workspace? Do you listen to music? And yeah. Is there a particular um, t- time of the day that you work? Um, I, you know, it's funny that I think you put it off for a while, you know, like yeah, it, I, I think... Well, you let things percolate. Like, you, you know, yeah. you... you um, no, but it can sort of start anywhere, really. Like, you know, I can be sitting on the tram and I've got a little notebook and I might be... have a little idea and pencil it down or whatever. It, 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 it unfolds in all sorts of different ways. I don't think there's any one way of doing it and it can only happen with other people like you know it's not this I think some people think designers just sit in their studios and make some beautiful thing and then get one day when the design deadline comes they pop it in a box get in the car come down to the company and present it on the day it isn't like that yeah. you know um, it's much more iterative than that you know it, it it comes backwards and forwards and there's an idea here and I'm just starting on a project um, with another colleague who I've worked with a lot and I just started the other day with some simple drawings pieces of paper and I've just he and I were sitting here exact right here and I said oh maybe that first act could look a bit like this and it just starts with a simple drawing and and if 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 you see you can immediately see in the face of the director whether it's going to go anywhere or not and this one he I could see that he thought that was really interesting and so that sort of set me going I haven't done anything more about that yet because right. I've that's the other thing I think I don't know about other designers but I I've usually got several projects going at the same time or they're all at different stages but so you, it's never like okay I've finished a domineo on 
it's opened on Saturday night. Monday morning, I will start on the magic flute. You know, it's they they overlap, and then of course other things become. You know, like this job here is is also pretty demanding too. So well, this job here is of course the other string to your very creative bow as an educator, where you're training the next generations of of designers. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, WAPA, West Australian Academy of Performing Arts, that was the first time that you yeah. assumed that role as a, a head of design. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, well, I'd been designing for about 15 years. I was at MTC, so I'd come down the second time John Sumner asked me, and I said yes. And I'd been there for nearly five years. Roger Hodgman was running the company by then. And I'd kind of got to the end of my... I, I felt like design was getting really harder and harder. I was hitting roadblocks and not knowing how to... And, and it was a bit like, I've done this one, now I'll have a weekend off and then I'll start the next one sort of thing, you know, because I was a resident designer and I knew what I was going to do for the year and they all fitted one after the other sort of thing. So any, And they seemed to be getting harder and harder. Anyway, Hugh Coleman rang me up one, one day and he said, oh, Rick, um, what are you up to? And I said, oh, I don't know what, I was struggling with some, some project. And he said, look, I got a phone call from a man called Jeff Gibbs the other day, and he was asking me if I was interested in teaching and setting up a design course. And Hugh said, oh, he said to Jeff, I don't think so, but I, I, I think I know someone who might be interested. So he rang me, and I went, oh, do you think? And my wife, my partner Joan, she's a much more um, adventurous person than I am in many respects. She said, yeah, yeah, go for it, go on, give it a shot. So I had this meeting with Jeff Gibbs in the hotel downtown in Melbourne and um, before I knew it I'd said yes and we were on a plane and with my very young family of five, three and six months and Joan and we're on a plane and we get off in Perth and it's 42 degrees and it's <laughs> what the hell have we done? The thing that struck me was everything was brown from the from yeah. the ball water. All, all the and all the and walls, walls are stained yes, and yeah. it's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And we got off there and and that's when I started teaching. So and it was a real sort of thrown in the deep end you know I, I turned up on sort of Monday morning you know it wasn't quite teaching was going to start two weeks later or something yeah. I turned up on a Monday and I met Jeff and I met Duncan Ord my boss and he said oh right so you're here oh okay well we better find an office for you I suppose <laughs> so um, a, a, an office was found for me down at Newcastle Street because design and lighting and costume were down there still which turned out to be a really great place to train designers and um and i went down there i had no classroom i i said where am i do i have is there any stuff like do we where do we teach oh well what do you need tell us what you want you know it was very gung-ho you know sort of okay what do you need oh well get so and so to get you stuff you know like um, and it was literally writing a course there was nothing I had to sort of go back to I had to look back to myself I had to sort of 
what were you learning in Adelaide in exactly. South Australia? Exactly. Yeah. I, I sort of put myself back to that first year that I was in Adelaide when I'd come out of university and what did, not, what did I not know that I wish I had known? And that's how it sort of began, the sort of structure of what I thought I'd... Because I felt like I'd always thought if you, can, if, you, you know, if you can give someone a bit of a sort of structure to a, a skeleton, if you like, to, to build on, they're not totally blind. Like they've got some, even just some very basic processes like, well, I'll tell you what, it'd be a good idea to get a decent floor plan of the theatre, wouldn't yeah. it? Yeah. And you know, the next thing, you know, if you've got a floor plan and a section of the theatre, maybe you could make a model box. You know, so as soon as you say that and you show them how to do it, that's stage one. You know, so, and then while you're doing that, you could read the play. And, you know, I'd, one experience I had in very early on in my time at South Australian Theatre Company is I was asked to do Summer of the 17th Doll. It was about the fourth thing I ever designed. Um, it had, um, oh, Carol Skinner playing Olive. Absolutely fantastic. She had done it in Melbourne and she was a sensation and, and perfectly cast in it. Had a really good cast. We sit around the table on day one. I'm designing the costumes and the set. And we sit around the table and they do the first reading. It gets to about, I don't know, page 22 or something like that. And Pearl says, to, oh, Olive comes down the stairs, sits in the script. Olive comes down the script stairs and Pearl says, that's a lovely dress. And Olive says, I'm making this up now. Yeah. Oh, yes, something, yes, love, something fresh and green. Well, we pass around the costume designs and Carol says to me, where's the fresh and green dress? There wasn't one. Because I had never sat down and done a, a very careful Dissected extraction yeah, yeah, yeah. for costume. Mm. And note to self... So, you know, stuff like that, that's a process. That's a simple thing that's really easy to avoid. Yeah. And it's very easy to teach someone how to do that. Yeah. So it's things like that that, you you know, I, I had to find out the hard way. And, of course, they were fantastic, those actors, to me. I mean, they all saw, when I would have been, like, 22 or something that, that then, they all knew. But I felt like... They weren't just going, oh, this guy's an idiot. He doesn't know anything. They were, think they were thinking... They, they were treating me like a student and they were helping me, do you know? And I think it's because they probably recognised something in me that they thought was worth doing that for, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so that's how teaching sort of started. And, and the funny thing about it was that, you know, I'd, I'd been in Melbourne and I'd been designing for about 15 years by then and it was getting harder and harder then I go to Perth I have this sort of business of having to figure out what hell design is and start a structure to teach young students how long was the course? three years oh, right. and then within about a month of being in Perth I get a phone call from Ray Omidai and he's just starting up this new theatre company called the West Australian Theatre Company. Oh, no, State Theatre Company of WA, it was called. Didn't last long. And uh, he said, oh, I wonder if you'd be interested in designing, what was it, Country Wife? Jenny McNay directed it. 
And I said, yeah, sure, you know, yeah, I'll give it a shot. And suddenly it was really easy. And I thought, what's going on here? And I think it was the process. And I started with Jenny and I had a chat. We talked about it, what it could be. And I came up with an idea. She loved the idea. I just did it. I, I just like, because I was also teaching at the same time. And I think the process of actually figuring out what the process is and articulating that to others somehow Fit into your made it easier for me, practice. my own practice. Yeah. Mm. Because in the process of doing that, you sort of push aside a whole lot of stuff that's sort of unnecessary. Mm -hmm. And students are very good at picking that out as well. You know, they'll say, why do you do that? And you go, mm, that's a really good question. I don't think, let's not do that anymore. Yeah. You know, they're good at, they're, they're very innocent questions, but they're very often, they cut through all of the sort of perceived, you know, because the truth of the matter is you the only answer you can say is, because I've always done that, yeah. <laughs> and now I won't yeah. anymore, <laughs> you know. Uh, it would be very rare that we have painted backdrops nowadays. Yeah. Um, the advent of technology has meant that all things, all sorts of things are possible yeah. in the theatre. That must be uh, a crucial part of your syllabus as well. Uh, yeah, definitely. You, using technology. Yeah, but, you know, you'd be surprised at how much it's a sort of combination, really. You know, there's... There's a whole lot of technology in the theatre that's still there from the 19th century, you know, fly towers, for right. instance, and, you know, old-fashioned things like revolves and trucks and all of that. But, yeah, absolutely, like, added to that now is the most brilliant digital technology of uh, projection in particular, but also LED screens, you know. But, they're, look, they're just tools... You know, they, they still have to be driven by an idea. And is, if, if they're only there because they look, you know, they're, they're sort of seductive in their sort of flashiness, yeah. then that's all they are, you yeah. know. Um, I, I, think, I think coming up with a really strong and... Um, conceptually sound response to a play that hasn't changed yeah. you know that's people have been doing that for as long as we've had theatre you know the theatre is ephemeral it's, it's there and then it's, it's gone yeah um, meaning that a lot of those those sets are, are destroyed and yeah. taken away costumes etc is there consideration nowadays of sustainability in the theatre definitely it's becoming much more of an issue um, the, for instance budgeting now um, it's increasingly you, you're starting to see another line in a budget which is the carbon line do you know so if you make this decision that's yeah. what it's going to cost you in terms of carbon footprints you know? yeah um, or a comparative thing. If you use that, it'll be that. If you use this, it'll be this. So make up your mind. Now, you're still being given the option to take the hard decision of the more heavy carbon footprint because this visual image is so important. It's like right at the heart. But you might have to give something else up in order to do that. Yeah. You know. So, yeah, for sure. I mean, the other area that is... Um, I feel 
quite strongly about and and I started thinking about this when I was teaching in Hong Kong. I taught in Hong Kong for a couple of years at Hong Kong Academy. And I was horrified the first opera that I designed there because as head of design, you were required to design at least one show a year, like I was in Whopper, actually. And uh, I remember at the end, they built this beautiful set, you know, from brand new materials and so on, a fabulous set for this playhouse, big set, lots of sets. It was Marriage of Figaro. So it was four big scenes, and then it all went in the dumper bin straight after. Like, I couldn't believe it. I said, what are you doing? And they, they said, look, there is absolutely nowhere to put this in Hong Kong because space in Hong Kong is, premium, is yeah. like the most valuable commodity. But in the end, it, and it's, you can't say it's going to landfill because there is nowhere to put yeah. it. So, and in fact, there used to be, I used to catch a ferry home. I lived on Lantau and I'd get a ferry, a sort of 25 minute ferry home every night. And you'd go past this place where they were bulldozing stuff, the tip. And there was literally stuff just literally falling into the water, like off a big mountain of, you know. So I don't know, that that's not sustainable. So I think um, recycling, so actual storage of props, the old thing that we used to have, we all took for granted the prop store or the costume store where all the old costumes were and you could repurpose them. And that's, you know, that's an easy thing for a, an accountant to get rid of half of that and cut back the space. That's coming back again now. Because, yeah, I mean, good, that good. is just so wasteful, yeah. you know. And, um, and look, all the students that I teach, they are all... Well, this is the world we're um, bequeathing them. Yeah. So they're really conscious of it, you know. So it, it's it's probably it's the most important thing, I think. You've attended a few opening nights in your career. Mm. Do you have a routine or a um, ritual that you go to on opening nights? I do go to opening night, and I do think that, and I feel I, I've I've probably I don't know. I, ha I know I've, I couldn't say when it was, but I, I know I've missed one or two over the years for, for some one reason or another. And it's very weird when you don't go. Like It's like you haven't sort of had closure on something. Yeah, yeah. And, but I never, ever go back afterwards. Like I do, after that opening night, it's, I, look, I might have gone back to something to see how it's going, but... I could count that on one hand, like uh, maybe twice or three times or something. I, I kind of, I feel like it's time to move, time to, and you know, there is this funny thing when you're involved in a show with all these other people and you sometimes it might have been something you've worked on for more than, you know, maybe two years you've been, since you started mm. thinking about it and so on. So you develop this whole relationship with all of these people and, and of course the group is begins very small and then people start adding to it and adding to it and by the end by the time you're in the theater it's big you know and it can be massive yeah. and then it's gone yeah you know and you move on to the next one yeah, yeah. and yeah I, I i sort of love that there's a thing in um uh prague quadrennial 
like every four years in Prague, they have this thing called the Prague Quadrennial, which is where all these sonographers from all over the world come, teachers and practitioners and students. And they have an element of it that's called fragments. And it's called fragments because it's acknowledging that what we do is, is ephemeral, that it's here in the moment and then it's gone. And there are only fragments of things left of it. And very often, one of the most significant fragments is the model. You know, because it's a still a real object in real time. It's not photo. Yeah. It's not on a screen. It, you can hold it and look at it and get a sense of the space. And so they, fragments usually consists of exhibitions of models from things that have long gone. Yeah. And I, I, I love that element of it. I love the thought of... This is true. The model generally is the survivor, isn't it, of any yeah. production? Yeah, and the costume drawings, yes. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes the costumes, you know, although they get older and older and tattier and tattier. Mm. Or, you know, yeah, so... Do you read reviews? Yeah, I do. I don't mind. And I, I don't know, I, I, you know, some of my f- colleagues get terribly hurt by reviews. I, I don't know. I, do you know what? I mean, this is a terrible admission, but I sure that I take it too seriously the whole thing (laughs) and maybe that's bad too you know that I should take it more seriously I know I've always I've always enjoyed the the sort of adventure of it I suppose you know like and if someone doesn't like it I don't care and actually I look at my folio I can look back at my folio on my website and look at shows that I'm particularly proud of and some of those shows got totally panned or did appalling box office one of one of them one of my favorite shows of all time that I designed and I still think of it as one of the best bits of design that I've ever done did the record box office disaster at Sydney Theatre Company I think it still holds that record wow well you can tell me off mark <laughs> <laughs> that was the blind giantess dance oh right okay yeah which i love doing and i love Stephen Sewell. Yeah, yeah and it's a fantastic play but it just didn't sydney theater company audience didn't it didn't do it you know but anyway there you go do you have a favorite part of the theater part of the theater yeah the auditorium the wings the stage door uh, we've no, spent a lot of time um Oh, like I, um, you know, when when in when you're in Tech Week, you you're obviously encouraged to sit near the director, and the director's at the production desk with the lighting designer and all of that. And stage set and costume designers don't usually get given a space in those, and I'm happy with that. Yeah. So I like to sort of move around a bit, you know, but I I I don't like sitting too close, like my perfect spot to sit in a theatre is definitely not on the centre line it would be to one side or the other not right to the extreme but um, just so that you're looking at the stage from just a slight angle you're kind of looking into it and sort of halfway up I I don't I I like to get a good whole view actually back the rear of the state theatre stalls, which are often sold as B reserved, I personally think they are some of the best seats in the house because you get a whole picture and it's got really good sight lines for state yeah. theatre. So it, the rake is enough that you don't have a big head in front of you, you know, like you can see everything. So back, back row of the stalls, state theatre, 
that's the one to be. I've been told the same thing about the Theatre Royal in Sydney. Yeah. 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 So, um, Good to know. Some theatres, I, you know, I, like I, I can't stand sitting right down the. I cannot bear sitting in the front row. Yeah. Well, you look up nostrils, aren't you? Well, you know, and, and also, you just want to get back. I suppose that's because I'm a designer. I yeah. don't. You want I, to take in the whole I picture. I want to yeah. see the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Richard Roberts, I could uh, talk forever about no, Design to You. It's been fascinating. No, it's a pleasure. Um, continued uh, success with your students at the Victorian College of the Arts and um, a few opening nights coming up with the visitors, the opera and, yeah. uh, and Domineo and the Magic Flute, uh, summer yeah. season at, at Opera Australia. Yeah. So thank you very much. Pleasure, Peter. Really. There are only a couple of days left to catch Victorian Opera's operatic adaptation of Jane Harrison's The Visitors, playing at the Arts Centre in Melbourne, and designed by my guest today, Richard Roberts. Thank you, Richard, for a fascinating conversation. And thank you for joining us in this episode. You know where you can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far, don't you? Yes, by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages.